Good afternoon, and welcome to Your American Heritage. I'm your host, Ed Bondarenka. Producing the show is Derek Stone. Derek hosts Stone Cold Sports Truth Sundays at noon 30, right after my friend Sean Todd hosts The Intersection at noon. Sundays, listen. It's day 1021, 1,021 days of the coup, the theft of the American government by enemies both foreign and domestic. There's a war going on for control of America and you. The government has been weaponized against us. The agencies have been captured or established to keep you in line. The Constitution was designed to keep the government in line, not you. There's a war against our heritage, our children and grandchildren, a war to convert them, to groom them into confused, alienated lost souls. It's an old story to lure them to the island of lost boys, the pleasure island of Pinocchio. The Pied Piper of Hamlin will try to steal your children from you. The Jesus that the left loves to portray as a compassionate, love, and peace hippie, that Jesus said it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. We have a government that is literally hell-bent on causing our little ones to stumble, and woe to you parent who does not protect his or her child from these government-perverted influences. Should I repeat that? If you leave your kids in their hands, who is to blame? This is nothing less than an apocalyptic battle of good versus evil. And many of us don't even have an idea what's going on. We have a government in Washington that is going to extraordinary lengths to prosecute anyone it disagrees with or fears. Donald Trump is on that list. The January 6th patriots are on that list. I'm on that list. You're on that list. They want a government that controls you instead of securing your liberty. And what is to be our response? We resist. We protest. We broadcast. We boycott. We boycott. We go to court. We vote whether they cheat or not. We warn our fellow citizens. We write books. We arm ourselves, intellectually, of course, and we pray. They have a justice department. We have a God. Psalm 144 says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So please clasp your hands and your fingers. Let's pray. Let's go to war. Father, please lead us and guide us as we seek to restore the liberty that you gave us, that our forefathers fought for, and to restore this nation that you had a heavy hand in the establishment of. And please help us to restore this nation to a constitutional republic and to remove the influence of those that would subjugate us. And please help us protect our children from these evil conspirators. And if they will not repent, please remove them utterly from our presence. Amen. So, um, in fact, before we go further, Derek, would you play the short version of that, please? Sorry to catch you unawares. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for both pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to. People like me, people like you, wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is, oh it is, living in the new world, with an old soul, these rich men know the rich men, Lord knows it all, just wanna have total control, wanna know what you think.
politicians look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere lord we got folks in the street ain't got nothing to heat and the whole beast milk and welfare Yeah, you get the drift. The song's very popular. Now, I'm going to say that if you've been listening to this show for a while, and shame on you if you haven't, the opening of my show pretty much reflects that story. Appropriate to the Richmond, north of Richmond, that song by Oliver Anthony and the situation we find ourselves in, I happen to be reading a book. It was uh, represented to me by one of the publishing houses, uh, I think it's Regnery, that uh, often suggests people to me. And... Uh, Boy, this one was a good book. I bought it on Kindle. It's called Robert E. Lee on Leadership, Lessons in Character, Courage, and Vision by H.W. Crocker. It's a wonderful book. It's a fascinating biography. That, of course, must include history, not the dry bones history you had in school, but a retelling of the story that shaped Robert E. Lee and the United States. And the book was written as a study on leadership principles, something I've been interested in since I was a sergeant in the Air Force. And through my career in management and, uh, and as a managed person also. So joining us today is the author, H.W. Crocker. H.W. Crocker III is the best-selling author of the prize-winning comic novel, The Old Limey. He's written the Custer of the West series and several nonfiction histories, including Triumph, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Civil War. And I love the pig books, Politically Incorrect Guide. Uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the British Empire, Don't Tread on Me. And The Yanks Are Coming. His journalism has appeared in National Review, The American Spectator, uh, Crisis, The National Catholic Register, The Washington Times, and a lot of other places. So welcome to your American heritage, H.W. Crocker. And uh, may I call you Harry? Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you, Harry. So why don't you tell us something about yourself, some biography, (laughs) and how you got to be the person you are today, and then what inspired you to write this book? Sure. Um, I grew up, believe it or not, in San Diego, California, which was a much different place back then. It was still largely a Navy Marine Corps town. My dad had been in the Marines. And um, that was actually my ambition as a kid. I wanted to be a Marine, but I had some uh, health and injury setbacks, which made that not happen. So instead of going in the Marines, I ended up writing about military stuff all the time. But I I grew up in in Southern California, San Diego, went to school there, went to school also a little bit later in England. Spent some time in England, um, and uh, was a newspaper man for a short while. Also wrote speeches, uh, political speeches, for four years for the then governor, then Republican governor of California, back when the state could still elect Republicans statewide. Uh, and then I spent most of my career, though, in, um, in, in book publishing, uh, doing political books, actually for regular publishing. I, I ran uh, their editorial department. But I also spent this other side, like this other side of me is writing books. And I've been writing a lot of military history books or novels, um, fiction that has a military theme, like The Old Lime is about a British general. The Custer of the West series is three books that um, imagine that Custer survived his last stand, survived the Battle of Little Bighorn and becomes sort of Western hero, Western do-gooder. Um, but the, the military books specifically are Don't Tread on Me, which is a history of the entire uh, American military. I mean, actually going back to, you know, before we were actually a country back in the colonial days, up through today. And um, you mentioned 
Robert E. Lee and Leadership, which I'm here about today, and the politically incorrect guide to the Civil War. I've written a lot on the Civil War. Um, and for a long time, even in my working life, I lived in Virginia. Um, and I actually walked these battlefields, and my eldest son went to a school called VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, which Stonewall Jackson taught, and it was just right smack dab across the lawn from Washington and Lee University, where Lee is actually buried. Um, and, and his horse. Yeah, and his, well, and his horse, Traveler, this is like actually a, contemporary, a modern story, his horse, Traveler, is buried there right next to Lee Chapel, and I read just you know, a few weeks ago that as part of this massive political correct vandalization of our past, they had removed Traveler's gravestone. I mean, even horses are not spared the, uh, the fury of the left, I guess. The ignominy. Ugh. Hey, look, do you mind if I read a short, a short segment about Traveler? I was, I was really amazed at something uh, I read on a friend of mine's blog recently. Do you mind? No, 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 go ahead, yeah. Uh, I read this at Larry Lambert's blog, Virtual Mirage. It says, this guy's writing, and I don't even get his name, but he says, my brother then offered him, Lee, the horse as a gift, which the general promptly declined, and at the same time remarked, if you will willingly, willingly sell me the horse, I will gladly use it for a week or so to learn its qualities. Thereupon, my brother had the horse sent to General Lee's stable. In about a week, the horse was returned to my brother with a note from General Lee stating that the animal suited him, but that he could no longer use so valuable a horse in such times unless it was his own. That if he, my brother, would not sell, please to keep the horse with many thanks. When a friend of Lee's told him he was working exceedingly hard in his... I'm sorry, that's, that's the story. I'm, I went on with something else. Yeah, well, yeah, the, uh, Lee also said... I mean, he, the relationship between Lee and Traveler is a charming one. Yeah. And in fact, the fellow who wrote, if you remember the, the uh, novel, Watership Down, he wrote a novel about uh, Traveler. It's called Traveler. Really? <laughs> it's probably banned now, for all I can imagine. But, uh, but no, Lee said that he could not have survived the war if it were not for Traveler. And he meant that not because Traveler was a great war horse, but because whenever Lee could get you know, a half hour away from the battle line or from making his strategic plans, he would ride out into the countryside on Traveler. That's how he relaxed. And um, he and Traveler were inseparable. Wow. So, once again, you took a certain tech in this book, and you didn't, and, and <laughs> you've alluded to something I was going to ask you. Your tech in this book is uh, business leadership, the examples that, uh, that Lee set in his life. And at the end of each chapter, it's almost like uh, study points uh, to point back to lessons learned from that chapter. And, and I like that. But do you really expect to sell this book in this cancel culture where Lee is being, you know, he's the oppressive white man from the South, the, the you know, the slave owner, and, uh, you know, as, like you said, even Traveler's Headstone is being taken down. What college besides Hillsdale would support your book? Yeah, no, no, no that's, that's a good point. I will say this book is actually a reissued edition of a book I wrote roughly 25 years ago. Uh, which and it, it was—it's the best-selling book I've ever written. What is it called? Um, Don't over tell 100,000 copies. And, and but I will say this too, and this is shocking to me as well because the book just came out in this reissued, nice-looking paperback, and 
uh, I'm doing shows like this for a book. <laughs> just a reissue, not a new book, but a reissued book, which is which is not often that people want to talk about him. And I think part of the reason is right, I'm I'm 62 years old, and I, if you were to ask me what two things have changed the most in your lifetime, well, one obvious one would be the whole transgender you know insanity. I just think that's, that's unthinkable. But the other Excuse thing, me, I take it you it, weren't offended by my show opening. I often cringe. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but the other thing is our attitude towards the Civil War, because throughout, I mean, from like the end of the war, practically speaking, through the end of the 20th century, the common American understanding of the Civil War was as a war between two gallant opponents. In fact, you can look back to someone, I actually quote this in the book, I'm Paraphrasing now from memory, though, but Theodore Roosevelt, who had a southern mother, and he had a northern father. His father's actually draft age to go in the war, but didn't go in the war. But Roosevelt said more than once in different you know circumstances, "Look, as Americans, as Americans, we can take pride, one by the boys in blue who fought for Grant, and by the boys in gray who fought for Lee, because both sides fought for the right as they saw the right." And that was the American ad. If you watch any Western in the 1950s or 60s or 70s, you know, there was always like the guy from the you know, former Confederate officers is one, of the, is one of the cast, undoubtedly. Or, you know, popular songs, you know, the night they drove old Dixie down. You had liberals mm-hmm. like Joan Baez singing songs like that. You had Wanted Dead Leonard or Alive. Skinner, right, singing Sweet Home Alabama in Oakland, California. They changed and put a flag behind them. You had the Dukes of Hazard. You had, you had, on a more serious note, you had like, mainstream liberal historians, probably the preeminent historian in the 20th century of American history, there was a man named Samuel Elliott Morrison, educated at Harvard, taught at Harvard. Guess what? He loved the Confederacy. So did a guy named Henry Steele Commager, who was a collaborator with him on some histories. And both of them take this attitude, which was, again, a very common American attitude, which was that, wow, we love Lincoln, we love the Union, but boy, that, those Southerners, they were such underdogs, and wow, Lee was such a noble, great man, and Stonewall Jackson, what tactical brilliance and Christian piety, and Jeb Stewart, what a dashing cavalier. You could have both. When those statues went up across the South and elsewhere, I mean, up through Maryland and, and San Diego, where I was from, used to have a school named after Robert Lee, an elementary school. They were national heroes. And the reason that they, were, that they were respected was not just out of regional patriotism. It was not just because they were great soldiers. It was because they were men who, who exemplified heroic virtues. They were honored for their character. And this didn't change until, I mean, the last 20 years at most. And, and at first, it seemed to me like it was just like this cartoonish propaganda, but it's, but it's actually worse than that. It's, it's much worse than that. It is replacing real history. I mean, literally, it's, it's vandal- it is literally vandalizing our history, knocking down these, these, these statues, these monuments. But it's replacing American history with, I guess you could call it maybe a critical race theory version of history. And there have been so many foolish, if well-meaning people, I mean, just foolish people, who thought, oh, well, I guess we can do without these Confederates. But that's impossible, because not only are they interwoven into American history in a way that we need to respect and honor, but they're linked to everyone else. Robert E. Lee 
His family was in Virginia since the 17th century. He married into George Washington's family, right? Yeah. He, I mean, his father was an officer, a cavalry officer under George Washington. And so, of course, when the Confederates go, well, there go the founders. There goes Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. There goes even Lincoln because, you know, he pushed Indians out of the West with the Homestead Act, and everybody goes down. Every single American hero goes down because they're not going to meet these, the new Marxist cultural Marxist criteria that these people have set. And people who want to take your, your past away from you, people who are grave robbing like this and knocking down monuments like this and rewriting history books like this, these people are not well-intentioned. And I think this, is, this needs to be understood. These people are not well-intentioned. When they try to take your history from you, it's because they want to sell you their own bill of goods. And that bill of goods is based on racial hatred. It is based on absolute falsehoods. And it is based on disparaging men who we should be holding up, as we used to hold up, as, as exemplars, as great men, as heroes. I will tell you this, that the book, Gone with the Wind, people forget this. Some people write it off, oh, it's a Harlequin romance. No, no, no. Gone with the Wind was a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. <laughs> and it is a great book. And there is more real history in Gone with the Wind than you will get from any liberal history of the last 20 years. That's an absolute truth. When people talk about the lost cause, you know, the, the pro-Confederate view of the, war, of the war, or at least a rosy view of the South and War, the lost, oh, that's just, you know, that's, that's, like, uh, that's like climate denial or, yeah. or election denial. No, I mean, the, the lost cause, I mean, there, there is a nostalgic part of it. You, you, you could, yes, you can criticize it. We can have arguments over proper interpretations. But the, but, but the striking thing to me is that if it's a falsehood, it's a falsehood that begins immediately after the war. It is a falsehood, the way they describe it, that was actually embraced by many people in the Union after the war. There is a Confederate memorial at Arlington Cemetery, which is currently under threat. At the end of this year, it could be taken down because of these, you know, they're renaming all the military bases and all this horrible other stuff. But that monument went up under the presidency of McKinley. Now, McKinley was a Union veteran. <laughs> and it is striking to me that the people who actually fought in this war were more magnanimous to each other than people in 2023 on the left who cannot tolerate. Because it, it, it can't tolerate it. And, and, and it's, just, it's such an inhuman and narrow-minded, bigoted, I have to say evil view. I don't understand how they can possibly do it. I mean, a great set piece in American history, Appomattox. Mm -hmm. when, when, when Lee is going to surrender to, to Grant, Grant says, oh, you know, at last, our, we're, we're, the war is over, we're going to win. He's very happy. He's thinking, and this is the key thing, too. He, he says, the rebels will now again be our countrymen. So he's already got this idea yeah. of unity. Yep. Right? So he's elated that the war is over, and then he sees Lee come in. And Grant, of course, is like typically kind of mud-spattered and kind of sloppy in a mess. And coming in, though, is this immaculately uniformed Robert E. Lee wearing a spotless gray uniform with a red sash. And, uh, and when, when Grant sees him, he says, he remembered later, this was his memoirs, he says that you know, he was struck with melancholy and sadness. 
because Lee and his men had fought so gallantly and so hard and so well for a cause Grant did not approve of. But he had to respect them, and to see them brought so low made him sad. And his view was actually echoed by other officers who were there. And so this, this sense, again, of, of, I think of it as the American Iliad. You know, so you have noble mm. Greeks on one side mm-hmm. and noble Trojans on the other. That was the former American view. And how we've gotten away from that into thinking that they were both evil in some ways. I mean, once I was, you know, just unbelievably evil is just so wrong. So wrong that I just, it, it makes my blood boil. Exactly. You know, uh, Derek, what do we got, a minute left? Three minutes. Oh, good. I could say a couple things in, in, uh, before the commercials. And, you know, it, you were talking about basically the erasure of our culture. And that's why I, my wife and I started this show, Your American Heritage, because it, we thought Trump was going to win and there was going to be a celebration of our heritage. You know, I mean, when we started, Trump was president. We thought it was going to carry on. And we, let's, let's celebrate our heritage. And now it's like, uh, let's discover our heritage. Right. And, there was a TV show. I read this uh, science fiction novel when I was a, a kid, and uh, that would be many years ago. Uh, and it was called The Man in the High Castle, and they made a TV series out of it. Have you seen that, by the way? No, I have not. Well, there's a scene in it, but basically the Nazis win the war over America. And finally, in the 60s, they decide, we've had enough of this America, there's a rebellion. We're going to cut out their history. And so they actually ha- have, the, Goebbels comes out with this campaign called Yarnall. Year zero. And we've heard the term year zero in English in many terms. And so basically they come in and they destroy America's culture. They, they have this, uh, what's her name, the Hitler's videographer, Riley Weissenferker or something. I can never remember her name. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, she's filming people destroying statues. And this is all coincidental with people in American culture, currently watching the show, watching the news, watching statues <laughs> being destroyed. And their big one was tearing down the Statue of Liberty. Why? To get rid of our history so we'd forget who we were and what our values were. And, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, so I, I just want to bring that up. I mean, it's, it's interesting when, that, when you see something like that on Amazon Prime, you go like, who fell asleep at the wheel and let that one through? So, <laughs> and then... I've, and we've only got like a few more seconds before the music starts. And then, of course, you're going to come back and we're going to talk some more about Lee. And um, But you have not referred to the war as the war of northern aggression. You are from the south. <laughs> well, I often in the, I call it the war between the states. But, yes, I, the war of northern aggression, we can talk about this after the break. I want to. Is, is true. I mean, that is literally true. I can explain why in, in a wee bit. Oh, and by the way, there's another TV series. Yeah, we have one minute left. There's another TV series called Firefly which is basically very similar. It's, it's a Western set in space, and uh, the heroes are on the fly. You can imagine them as Confederates doing business in the West after the war. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, the captain of the ship, uh, Mal, at one point says, might have been on the, might have lost, but that doesn't mean we were on the wrong side, you know? Right. And, yep. uh, yeah, along those lines. So, folks, there's the music. We're going to come back with H.W. Uh, Crocker III, continue talking about Robert E. Lee. This is a very good book. I highly recommend it if you haven't guessed that. And come on back after the break, and we're going to talk more. Thank you. We were made to be courageous. 
is literally true. It's not just some interesting lyrics. We were made to be courageous. There's things that God has set all of us to do, and he expects it of us, and he disapproves of shrinking back in cowardice. And uh, boy, the, you couldn't call cowardice a, a trait of our uh, the subject of our show today. And speaking with us is the author of the book on Robert E. Lee, H.W. Uh, Crocker III. And uh, boy, we've been talking about things that I enjoy talking about too, so don't take me wrong here. Uh, we were supposed to be talking about his book, and we're getting far flung into history <laughs> and the Civil War and characters, and, and I'm, I'm loving every minute. I hope the audience is too, and I'm Either we're going to have to cram real fast, and I don't mean about Lee, but about some other topics that uh, I'd love to, to have you expound on, uh, or we're going to have to have you come back if you wouldn't mind. And, and I'm putting you in the position where you're going to have to say yes because you're on air, right, and you're going to be gracious. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. So um, I was actually pointing out that you didn't call it the War of Northern Aggression, and uh, I lived in Mississippi for a while. I lived in South Carolina for a while. And, and I saw that half of it, and I saw, you know, a lot of reaction to a lot of what, what had gone on from, from the Civil War on, from the Civil Rights Movement, a lot of stuff of the, the transition of the South. In fact, I have an interesting story I'm not going to get into right now, but I was uh, in martial law command of a county in South Carolina, and there were two different factions that wanted me to support them, and one was the old school uh, which was, uh, like I said, the old school. And uh, the other was the current mayor who had just recently been elected, and he wanted uh, resources fed to his constituents. He wanted to make sure they were taking care of the people instead of the businesses. And, you know, that was the South at that time. Can't speak for it now. But, um, boy, let me ask you, we opened up with uh, uh, that cut from Northmen, uh, Richmond, north of Richmond, which, of course, uh, w, uh, Washington, D.C. is just north of Richmond. What's your take on that song? Is that, was that appropriate to play for the, the topic we're on? <laughs> uh, I, I've heard it, and I, I've, I've looked into him a little bit. I mean, uh, he actually uh, is from Farmville, Virginia. I know where that is. There's a school that two of my sons went to called Hampton, Sydney. Huh. Um, and I, I'm sympathetic with that sort of um, the sort of uh, blue collar revolt, if you want to call it that, against the the rich men who do seem to be not interested about the the people as a whole, but just about enriching themselves. Yeah, yeah, and it had that southern feel to it, as he's saying. Yeah. I thought you were talking about and and fright fright quankly, yeah, fright quankly. Um, I'm not speaking for you, and I don't want to paint you into a broad brush of where I am. And so by being on the show, uh, you know, the views and opinions of Ed Bonnerink are not necessarily those of his guests. But I believe we're in the middle of a very quiet civil war right now. And here we are discussing the last civil war that we had. We're just not firing bullets yet. And there's a lot of people who anticipate that might 
come. In fact, Kurt Schlichter, Colonel Kurt Schlichter wrote some very, very well-read books on, uh, on the aftermath of the Ameri- next American Civil War. Uh, right now, it's a cultural war. We've known that for years. And there are people, there are political forces, I believe, that want to subjugate us. And so this is a battle. This is a fight. And so a song like that appeals to me looking at the last civil war. I'm not saying that uh, history rhymes or it's repeating itself in this case because we don't have these. Uh, the cultural divisions aren't north and south. They're actually, like it was pointed out to me, they're city versus rural. It's not conservatives versus uh, liberals. It's not uh, globalists versus the peons. It's actually the cities versus the city values versus rural values. But I just went off on a ramble that I was trying to avoid myself. So, uh, <laughs> so several years ago, I wrote a, a piece that went viral for the American Spectator. It was called "Our Next Civil War Will Be Worse Than Our Last," and it was making the, the point that you know, the Civil War was the bloodiest war in our history. Yes, but back then, I mean, Lincoln said this: "We worship the same God, we venerate the same Constitution, and we, we come from the same stock, largely, and so on and so forth. We have the same heroes." Um, that's not true today. I mean, left and right don't have the same constitution. They don't worship the same God, certainly. I don't worship pay all um, they do. And <laughs> it, 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 you know, the, mercy is a Christian virtue. And as the Democratic Party, as the left, becomes less and less Christian, um, this is one of the reasons I think you find that they are such, in their attitudes, they are so merciless. They are mm-hmm. so politicized. They are so vicious. It's because mercy to them is not a virtue. And, 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 and we have to realize that our opponents are in many ways taking on old-fashioned pagan values, the values that existed before Christianity took over the world, values which, you know, made human life sacred, well, not to them, you know, values that said mercy was good, well, not to them, values that said that the poor people represent the song, Richmond North of Mission, that they should be cherished because, no, 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 they're losers. Yeah. Um, this is why, if we do have another civil war, it's going to be heinous. I love to tell the story. This is kind of mixing my, my books here up a little bit. Please but do. Of, of Custer. Of Custer went to West Point and uh, was from the north. He's from Michigan, actually. Yeah, probably, well, Ohio, Ohio, Michigan. Michigan. There used to be a statue uh, of him near my hometown, but I think they took it down. Yeah, well, he, the great thing about Custer, I love Custer, actually, because but Custer fought for the North, obviously. But Custer loved at West Point. His best friends were all from the South because he, they shared the same love for you know horse flesh and and, uh, and chivalry and all that sort of thing. During the war, during the Civil War, Custer attended the wedding of a Confederate officer in Virginia. Didn't know that. <laughs> and spent some time there flirting with the Southern Bells who tried to convert him to their cause. Yeah. But if we had another Civil War, you would not have incidents. Like that, and if we did those civil war, I mean, I think this is where I, I think when we, when we, when the, the leftists disparage Robert E. Lee, when they disparage the decision he made, when the, when the real civil war actually happened, they are. It, well, again, it shows how anti-humane and anti-human they are. When you think of Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee is a man who served his country his entire life. He goes to West Point. He serves as an engineer. He serves in the Mexican War. He's a superintendent at West Point. Um, And when the war is about to break out, Southern Secession happens in two waves. The first wave happens when the states of the Lower South pull out. Among the states pulling out is Mississippi, whose senator, one of the senators, is Jefferson Davis. (laughs) So he 
He leaves the U.S. Senate, says it's the saddest day of his life, but he also says all we want is to be left alone, which is kind of like the lament of every conservative, right? <laughs> Just leave me alone. Yeah, you're right. So he goes down to his home state, he, and you know, Jefferson Davis himself, the president of the Confederacy, did not want secession to happen. But, but he felt once his state went out, he had to go out too. Lee and the states of the, well, states of the upper south don't pull out right away. What forces their hand, and when they decide to secede, is because the Lincoln administration orders them to raise troops to subject the insurrection uh, in the south. They call it, you know, we're going to end this rebellion in the south. And, the, and these states of Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, they say, no, 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 we're not, we're not going along with that. Sorry, we're not going to go fight our, our, southern, uh, our fellow southern states. We're not, we're not doing that. At this time, uh, Lee is offered command. Lee is already recognized as you know, the finest commander available. Mm-hmm. He, he's offered command of the Union forces. Lee himself is a man who is not in favor of slavery. And he wrote a letter to his wife, a famous letter, circa 1856, around Christmas time, where he says that slavery is an evil. He even says that few people these days doubt it's an evil. But, and this is actually more interesting, he says also that he, that he considers it a greater evil for the white man than the black because no man should have that much power over another man. And he was a man who was not in favor of secession. He said, I want no other flag but the stars and stripes. I want no other anthem but Hail Columbia. And he lived this. I mean, he served his country his entire life. But here he is. He's offered this, this, this command, you know, the, the ultimate thing you could ever be offered, command of the entire U.S. Army. And he says, no. He says, for all my love for the Union, I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but this is virtually what he said. Mm-hmm. For all my love for the Union, I cannot consent to turn my sword against my family, mm-hmm. my home, my native state. Save in defense of Virginia, I will turn my sword against none. And a union that can only be held together by swords and bayonets has no charm for me. Now, if... Excuse me. Let's assume, that was an eye-opener for me when I read that. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that in your book. I, that, that's just... Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it may, this, is, this is a part of what makes Lee, or had made Lee for every American generation before this latest one, to after the war, made him such a tragic hero, because anyone who is truly human and humane can understand his position and can sympathize with it. Um, and, and moreover, not just sympathize with it, but imagine if something similar happened today. Imagine in 2024... Uh, let's play out the scenario here. So, say that Biden steals the election openly, <laughs> and the states of the South secede again. Now, how many people today? Now, I used to I used to think this is a, a lot smaller number than I do now. Now I think it's, but I still think how many how many well-meaning people today would assume that the proper response to that would be for the Biden administration to send tanks over the 14th bridge that span the Potomac River into Virginia, to carpet bomb southern cities, to blockade southern ports. I don't think that would be, I don't think most people would think that was the proper measured reaction, because most people actually share Lee's view. They want the union to be together, but they think it should be a voluntary union. States should want to be together, and that we're not going to hold a state in by force. 
After the war, Lee had a, a correspondence with a man named Lord Acton. Lord Acton is the fellow who gives us power. the phrase, um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Acton wrote to Lee saying this. He said, I mourn more for what was lost at Appomattox with the surrender of the Confederacy than I rejoice in what was won at the Battle of Waterloo where the British defeated Napoleon. And the reason why he said that was because Lord Acton was what we now consider sort of a libertarian in his political leanings. And he believed that secession was another part, another necessary part of America's system of checks and balances. Because if a, it was, it was a check on the power of the federal government, because if the federal government didn't want a, a state to secede, it had to be really kind of circumspect in the powers it exerted. Because, oh, if we do this, we could alienate California. If we do that, we could alienate Utah. If we do this. So let's not do anything. So it was a great way to restrain the, the, the scope of the federal government, the power of the federal government, lest it alienate a state. Um, no one thinks like that anymore, but it's actually a very profound thought. I mean, how would the Biden administration be behaving today if it thought that anything it did might, if it alienated the state, they, those states might leave the union? You would be, you would think, a lot more, a lot more limited in its in its edicts to the you, to the to the states. So this is what states' rights is really sort of all about. And if you look at the Confederate Constitution, the Confederate the Constitution is really the American Constitution, but with more limits on on government power. Um, there was nothing to to reignite or restart the transatlantic slave trade. That's not in there. But what there what is in there is that the president is limited to one term. And there's, there's strong limits on what the, on the uh, central government can do. You know, free trade is guaranteed, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is, it's kind of like a, a rewrite of the American Constitution that made more libertarian. <laughs> well, Harry, you, you begged the question, or you may have answered it already, but uh, a gentleman from Arizona uh, texted in and was asking, you, asking to ask you whether you believed uh, the South had the right the constitutional right to secede. Okay. Now, well, yes, and here's why. Well, you know, the, the standard response to that question is yes, because I can't remember offhand right, the 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 name of the author, but it was a, a textbook used at West Point when when Lee went there, the constitutional textbook, which actually argued this point. But I think there's an easier way than going back into that sort of historical detail, which is just understanding how the Constitution, Constitution was ratified. The Constitution was ratified not by a vote of the people across <laughs> all the colonies. It was ratified by the states. So the compact entered into by the states, and some of those states actually said, we're entering into this with the understanding that we can leave. Um, yeah, like Texas now, did. The, so it's not, yeah, I mean, it seems that any compact you can't get out of... <laughs> Um, because it's going against your own interests is not a good one. So I think, yes, states can enter, states can leave. Um, I guess that's the, that's the easy way to put it. But another, another aspect of this, which you see actually with founders like Thomas Jefferson, um, is this idea, and, and others, you know, of nullification, right? Because mm-hmm. nullification, where a state can nullify a federal law that's not in its interest, is in a way a way to prevent secession. So, you know, South Carolina was the great nullification crisis because South Carolina hated the tariffs that the, that the federal government kept imposing because South Carolina had an exporting agricultural economy. And, and Jefferson was very sympathetic 
to Madison where they were sympathetic to this idea of nullification. Now, that, these are guys who actually were involved in the, the founding of our country. There, were, there was some difference of opinion here, but there, uh, yes, I think, I think secession should have been uh, allowed, but you know, it's something that you only go to in extremists. And that's why I actually agree with Acton. I think that you know, a, uh, it, we, we should view secession not as an act of revolution, but as an, as an act of a way to keep the federal government from ex- going I can, beyond. I can see your point. Yes, th- exactly. Going beyond the Tenth Amendment. One of, the sad, one of the sad things about the Civil War was that uh, I, you, you applaud uh, today, particularly we applaud states' rights. And as soon as you say that, you sound like, you know, you're you're uh, uh, aiding and abetting slavery because that seemed to be what the say, states' rights were about—to have slaves. So you had this double-edged sword. You you want to see states' rights, but not to implement this horrible uh, trafficking of human beings. And then I'm realizing while I'm listening to you, probably what the North was doing was what we do today now—intervene in foreign countries in order to to right a wrong we perceive as occurring there. Yeah, remember that too. That when the war begins, it's it's not about slavery explicitly. I mean, the, the border states like Missouri or Maryland or Kentucky, Washington D.C. for that matter, they had slaves, um, and uh, Lincoln was insistent upon uh, not making slavery an issue because that could alienate support in those states, and those states are largely put under martial law. Um, uh, and the, the Emancipation Proclamation comes. About midway through the war, mm-hmm. and interesting enough, the Emancipation Proclamation does not liberate slaves. Only, only and, behind enemy lines, yes. Yeah, it's only behind enemy lines is where the supposed and, to be. So it's like a it's, a it's a weird contradiction. He's giving orders to areas of the country or the country over which he has no authority. <laughs> oh, by the way, and and this is a very important point. Lee himself was opposed opposed to slavery, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and he, like many Virginians, I mean, this is, and he actually says in that, in the same correspondence with Act after the war, you know, we're all glad that slavery has been abolished. No one wanted that more than the people of Virginia. The problem for people like in Virginia, and this is true, you, know, you see it in Washington, you see it in Jefferson, you see it in many of the great leaders. They're all opposed to slavery, but they have inherited this institution. So the, the common way to try to get around this, was like in Washington's will. He met, he he frees the slaves, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Lee actually managed the estate of of uh, Washington Custis. He is obligated to you know to, to, to uh, liberate his slaves in this time period he had given to retire also Washington Custis' debts, <laughs> which he did. Was that, uh, this, was that Virginia that they, law? They didn't want it. They 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 recognized all its evils. And this is actually an important point about Lee: is that Lee believed that part of being an American was that you persuade people, you don't force them. You respect people's consciences, and you try to uh, persuade them through Christian moral persuasion. That was his attitude. That's leadership. That's yeah, no, exactly. You lead by, as an officer, you lead by example. You right? Know, uh, when he made his decision to fight for the South, he actually said, regarding his sons, that they had to make their own decisions that if he had done wrong, let them do better. <laughs> that they make their own, and, and because he respected the right of conscience. And this is what he thought was the great folly of the abolitionists, was that they, instead of trying to persuade people 
you had men like John Brown, who wanted, to, which who Lee actually was charged with arresting, um, who uh, wanted to have a slave uprising, and uh, that was like totally. <laughs> he he could not he could not tolerate that, and he thought that slavery should go away, it would go away over time as more and more people just thought, okay, we can phase this out. Here's how we do it. I've inherited these slaves. I'm going to free them when I'm dead in my will and so on and so forth. And it would go away. That, that everyone knew it was wrong. It was just a matter of how you ameliorate its consequences because, of course, some of those consequences were felt after the war. You have a lot of people suddenly unemployed. Right, exactly. Right? exactly. And what are you going to do with them? And part of Lee's thing when he was briefly managing this estate Arlington. was to find jobs for these slaves who were soon to be freed. Exactly. You know, uh, you say in your book that... Uh, Lee was a firm believer in the basic Christian tenets, in particular the Christian doctrine of original sin. It was a, even the salient point of his character if he was resolute and confident, if he was never crushed by setbacks or interested in assigning blame for failure, was because of this. He expected men to fail because by nature men usually did. He knew the challenge of leadership was to understand the fallen nature of man and succeed in spite of it. And then he goes on to say, uh, let him, his son Rooney, never touch a novel. They print beauty more charming than nature and describe happiness that never exists. They will teach him to sigh after that which has no reality, to despise the little good that is granted us in this world, and to expect more than is given. Wow. So, yeah, Lee was a realist, I mean, in, in the best possible sense. And he would also, though, another thing about Lee was that he didn't believe in cutting corners. I mean, he believed that everyone was, was an individual. People weren't replaceable. So you treated every man as, you know, like, that's, he, could, he could recognize the genius of Stonewall Jack, Jackson. He could recognize the, but he could recognize the man like Longstreet. No, was also, this is very different. You have to use him differently, treat him differently. Um, but he, you know, this is in a, I think, a letter to one of his sons. He said, never do anything wrong, I'm paraphrasing badly here, to keep a friend or to get a friend. Always deal straight with everyone. To his daughter Mildred, he writes something along the lines of, she says, oh, you know, I, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I want to do this other thing. He says that sort of conflict between, you know, what you know is right and what you know is wrong is, is everybody's got that. But all you have to do is do what is right. It will become easier by practice. And if you do that, you will have the reward of a, an approving conscience. And that's something else. He thought that this idea of an approving conscience, which you got by doing your duty to your utmost, was the ultimate at least reward before you die, <laughs> uh, the, the ultimate terrestrial reward, if you will. Uh, and he, he went to that all the time. He referred all the time to, to duty, conscience, duty and conscience. And well, one of my favorite stories, actually, about Lee, one of the most moving stories, is uh, a woman held up to Lee her infant son and said, General, what should I teach my son? And today, you'd expect some politicians to say, teach him self-esteem, or teach him <laughs> self-expression, or teach him that good boys don't make history. He's got to go out there and do... No, what does Lee say? Lee says, teach him to oh. deny himself. Wow, there's the music. Oh, my goodness, this has flown by too fast, and I have more questions for you. Oh, my goodness. Folks, we've been, we've been talking to H.W. Crocker III, author of Robert E. Lee, uh, and uh, I forget the rest of the title, to be honest with you, sir. Rowdy Lee on leadership. There you go. And, and we didn't even touch that much on the leadership aspect. So perhaps we can have him come back sometime. And, uh, but we have 30 seconds. Thanks for joining us, Harry. I appreciate it. 
Uh, we've got to go. God bless okay. America. America bless God.